0: All right, church, it's time once again to get into God's Word together, and you'll notice it's a bit of a change of scenery from last week. We're in my kitchen now. I was on the deck last week, and that was, like, kind of fun, but I was squinting the whole time, and I nearly froze, and my pages were blown around, and the neighbors were all outside wondering why I was so weird and what was going on. So we're inside today. And this is the last week of our series on the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And I want to stress one more time that the reason we're doing this is because we want to zero in on and discover and follow God's will for the church, for our church in this season. And some of that stuff we have to figure out through prayer, definitely. And we're doing that. We're working on that. But what I want to point out is that a great deal of God's will for the church is already recorded in the pages of Scripture. God has already told us a great deal about what he's looking for in the church, what he thinks, what he expects, what kind of people he wants us to be, what kind of things he wants us to be doing. And, and that, what God thinks, what God wants, that is what is most important to us. So I, I did this a few weeks ago. But I want to give us one quick recap of some of the things we've seen in this series. So first and foremost, Jesus is the head of the church jesus is the head of our church and that can't just be some flowery expression that we throw around but that has to be functionally true as well and as the head of the church jesus gives us a number of things that he's looking for and expecting so in no particular order he is looking for the church to be full of love for god and for one another jesus is looking for the church to be engaged in good works He's looking for the church to remain steadfast in the face of persecution. He is looking for the church to be pure doctrinally. He's looking for the church to be diligent to make sure it's in the will of God. He's he's looking for the church to do its part to ensure it's trending toward life and vitality and not death. He is looking for the church to be engaged missionally. We talked a little bit about that last week. And all the while, Jesus is expecting that the church would be a people given to repentance. So we, of course, we need to examine ourselves and think, how am I doing with this? How are we doing with these things? Now, as I indicated, we've got one more church to look at today. And most of you are going to be familiar with this last church. It's one of the more widely known ones in this group of seven. Now, if you're less familiar with it, you might think, hey, maybe we're going to end on a nice high note to wrap this up. You know, some of the churches we've seen are pretty bad. Some of them have been a little better. The one last week was pretty good. Maybe we'll, you know, swing for the fences on this last one and and end on a really good note. That's not happening. Uh, This church as we're going to see, had some things going on in it. And let's turn and study that now. If you have your Bible, open it up to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. We're going to have it on the screen. But I also would encourage you to follow along in your Bible if you've got it. So it says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write. I won't ask you to say Laodicea, don't worry. But you can if you want. And I'll pretend like I hear you. So we don't have the map, but Laodicea was, like the rest of these cities and churches we've been studying, it was in the western part of the country that is now Turkey in our day. And Laodice- Laodicea was a city built on top of a hill, and it was a it was a rich, affluent city. It was known as a medical and a textile center in its day, and it was very advanced as a city. For instance, since they were up on a hill, uh, it was more difficult to get water up there and they actually built an aqueduct to help in that process and if you don't know what that is you can look it up after the sermon and not a minute before. Now the city of Laodicea got totally destroyed by an earthquake in 60 AD But these guys were so rich that they just rebuilt it themselves. The the Roman government showed up and they said, hey, we'd like to offer you some disaster relief. And they said, "Hmm, no, thank you. We're fine on our own. So they rebuilt the place on their own dime. So when you think about Laodicea, think rich, affluent, self-sufficient, advanced, self-reliant. You're going to see some ironies on those statements further on in our text. It says, the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. This is undoubtedly talking about the Lord Jesus. He is the amen. He is the final word. And actually that word amen corresponds in some ways to the word truly in the Greek. So this points to Jesus as the ultimate source of truth. He is the faithful and true witness. So we've talked about this before, but again, it points to that idea of, of him uh, being the source of truth. He is the beginning of God's creation. That's a very interesting phrase and I want to just quickly stop on it because if we understand that wrongly, we could fall into the same trap that some uh, fell into in, our, in the history of the church, uh, into some heresy. You could read this and say, okay, this means that Jesus, the beginning of God's creation, this means he's a created being and he was the first thing that God created. That's a wrong way to read that. Jesus is not a created being. He is God. We we, we know that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and all are equally God. All have always existed. So Jesus was not created. Um, He's the beginning of God's creation in the sense that he was involved in and was there at the beginning of creation. You'll remember in a place like John 1, it talks about in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and nothing was made outside of him. Uh, Colossians 1.17 is another one. It says, he, Jesus, is before all things. So he's not... A created being he is creator god this is big jesus like we've talked about this is r- the risen and ruling and reigning king of all kings jesus his words are trustworthy his oversight is faithful he is the beginning and the end it all starts and ends with jesus everything rises or falls on Jesus, And I want to just sidebar on that and say, if you're watching this or listening to this and you don't know Jesus, that's got to be priority one for you. Like, I don't know what your level of spiritual curiosity or interest is, but I just have to tell you, it's all about Jesus. The, the, the point here is not, oh, I'll clean myself up and then God will be happy with me. Or even I'll start going to church and God will be happy with me. You need to know Jesus. He is the God who created you. He is the God who lives loves you. He is the God who stepped down from his throne and intervened on your behalf. He is the one who died to pay for your sins. He died on a cross in your place. He is the one who rose from the grave and he disarmed sin and death and darkness. He is the one who calls you to trust in him for salvation and accept him as Lord and and to accept him for the forgiveness of your sins. He is the one who calls you to follow him and trust in him and have a relationship with him. So again, if you don't know Jesus, that's priority number one for you. You can know him today and you can start living the life you were always meant to live today. And this Jesus, this big Jesus, says to his church in Laodicea, he says, I know your works. We have seen that time and time again in this series. But I'll stress again, Jesus knows his church. Jesus knows our church as the harbor. He knows our hearts. He knows our works. He knows our motivations. He knows what we're all about. He knows everything that goes on, even behind closed doors. He sees it all, the good and the bad and the ugly. There's no hiding it from him. And about this church in the Odyssey, I want you to understand Jesus has nothing good to say to these guys, not a word, not a shred. So that's encouraging, right? This is like This is like Jesus doesn't even give them the insult sandwich, okay? Like maybe you've seen the insult sandwich or have had to eat one of those before. It's where someone gives you a rebuke or an insult and they... And they sandwich it between two poorly disguised compliments, right? Like, it's like, it's like when they say, hey, thanks for coming in. Uh, we really like how you contribute to morale in the workplace. Uh, oh, by the way, just one little thing, you are incompetent and you're a terrible employee and you're unprofessional and you're a slob. But we love your sense of humor and you, you're left going, what am I supposed to make of that? Like, thanks, I think? Maybe not. So, so Jesus doesn't even do this. He takes the rebuke sandwich and he throws the bread away. It's all rebuke. So here's what he says. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. Now you might remember reading this before. These are the lukewarm people. And the truth is both things that are cold and things that are hot have their benefits. I think of something like water. When you're sweating out in the sun, a cold drink of water is really helpful. When you're out freezing in the cold, like I was last week doing the sermon, you want nothing more than a nice hot shower, for instance. But, but water that's just somewhere in the middle, lukewarm, it's kinda nasty. In fact, lukewarm anything is not very good. I guess maybe you could take your lukewarm water and like dump it in the toilet during a power outage and that'll help you, but like, really, I struggle to think of what lukewarm water or lukewarm anything is much good for. So actually, if you think of something, please tell me. I'd be interested to hear. Jesus says, would that you were either cold or hot. You can almost hear the exasperation in his voice. It's like he's saying at this point, taking a stand on either side would be preferable to me. Just pick a side and get over there. I want you to see Jesus hates the middle ground. He hates the middle ground. We'll talk more about that. He says in verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And you've all heard it before, right? That word spit actually translates more closely to the word vomit in the Greek. So Jesus can't even stomach them. This kind of attitude of being lukewarm in the faith is repulsive to him. And you say, well, that sounds serious, Braden. So what does it mean to be lukewarm in the faith? What does that look like? And I will give you a blanket statement answer, and I'll tell you, it can look like many things. It's not just a little cookie cutter, one size fits all kind of deal. For instance, though, uh, lukewarmness in the faith can look like indifference and apathy. You just don't care. Uh, Saying that you're in, but not acting as though you're in sitting on the fence or the sidelines, remaining in ongoing deliberate sin, not taking your faith seriously, just going through the motions, doing things not even with the wrong heart, but maybe not hardly any heart at all. If someone is lukewarm in their faith, it means ultimately on a high level, they just really don't care. Uh, Their faith isn't very important to them. And as a result, faith-wise, they're stagnant, they're stuck. They're unproductive. They're unfruitful. Uh, They're not really going anywhere. They're just kind of dragging the anchor along. And again, I will say Jesus cannot stand this posture. He absolutely hates it. When he says, would that you were hot or cold, he's really saying something quite staggering there. It's a pretty intense statement. Jesus would rather you be totally out than say you're in but not really be in. And when I'm saying out, just so we're not mincing words, I'm meaning like a rejection of the faith. I'm out of here. I'm not going to follow the Lord. I'm not interested in the church. I'm not a Christian. See you later. Now, Obviously, that's not what Jesus wants the most. Jesus wants all people and we want to see all people come to him and be saved through him and have a relationship with him and belong to him and enjoy and worship and serve him and be in uh, his presence for all eternity. That's what Jesus wants. But if you're just a no in that department, no thank you, he would rather that for you than for you to be lukewarm and stuck in the middle. That's just like a pretty staggering thing. Jesus hates the middle ground. Now, I want to just keep kicking this around. This does not mean that someone who is hot in their faith always has everything going on and they're always flying high in their faith and they're always on the mountain and never in the valley. They they never experience a dry spell in their faith. That's not what this means at all. If you talk to anybody who... Maybe they've been a Christian for a long time. They've legitimately been trying to seek and follow the Lord Jesus. They'll tell you that there are dry spells. There are valleys. There are seasons of struggles. That's definitely true of people you read about in the Bible. Like, go read the Psalms. It's full of that stuff. So what I'm not saying, again, is if you have a dry spell, it automatically means you're lukewarm. Dry spells are a part of the journey for someone who is legitimately seeking to follow Christ. And I want to just encourage you. Maybe some of you are in a dry spell right now. You are maybe sensing that God seems distant or you're struggling kind of to move past something or whatever the case may be. But you're still doing your part to press in and continue and not lose heart. I want to just encourage you. God loves you. God has grace for you. And God is in this with you, even if he may seem distant. So keep going, keep pressing in, keep fighting. God's got you. He does. All that being said, if you're in a perpetual dry spell and you're doing nothing to try to get out of it, you're not seeking the Lord in it, maybe you don't care or even really notice that you're in it, that's a sign of lukewarmness. Okay, it's not necessarily that you're in a dry spell, it's how you're responding to it. Um, Another thing, if you claim to be a Christian, but you are engaged in long-term, repetitive, ongoing, deliberate sin, that can be a symptom of lukewarmness. What I'm saying is if you never engage in any of the spiritual disciplines, you never pray, you never read your Bible, you never seek the Lord in worship, you you don't show up for worship corporately. Remember like when we used to be able to gather for church? That'll happen again someday, we're praying and trusting, but think back to when we could do that, you know what I mean? Like You, you don't show up very much and when you do, it's with your hands at your side and a frown on your face and, and you've got a blank stare on you and your mouth is motionless. It's that kind of thing. It's it's never taking time in silence before the Lord to hear his voice speaking to you. It's never coming alongside other believers so that iron can sharpen iron. It's never serving or doing anything but consuming. These are all symptoms of potential lukewarmness. And again, I will stress, Jesus has no use for this sort of mentality. This is the chronic, I don't care mentality. There is no place for that in the body of Christ. We cannot be complacent about it. We can't just be okay with it. There's another rebuke Jesus continues on with in verse 17. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. So remember that I said the people in Laodicea were rich financially. They were prospering economically. Their physical needs, probably minimal. They were self-sufficient, self-reliant, and they could trust in themselves for the provision of their needs. And what I'll say is this, it's not necessarily wrong to be rich. It's not a case of, oh, God just hates rich people. Not at all. But with riches come along certain pitfalls. And one of them is this, we can end up trusting our stuff more than we trust the grace of the Lord. that's part of the reason why Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 24, he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. And it's not, again, because God doesn't like rich people, but it's because the person with riches, it's, it's very easy for them to say, well, I don't need God. I don't need anything. I'm doing great on my own. It gives us a false sense of security. And perhaps that was happening to the church in Laodicea because Jesus says, You're not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That is a contrast for sure from what they thought of themselves. Wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked are all very descriptive terms that portray someone who is in need. That's not at all how those guys saw themselves. They thought they had it all, but Jesus says, you have nothing. You have nothing. And guess what, friends? We are all the very same way apart from Christ. Apart from Jesus, there is no eternal life. There is only condemnation. Apart from Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is only judgment for sin. Apart from Jesus, we are totally spiritually bankrupt. We are those who are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. We are totally in need. And listen, friends, we are totally unable in and of ourselves to fill that need ourselves. So we desperately need Jesus. And again, I'll say if you have not accepted him as your Savior, you can do that today. I would highly encourage that. You can get a hold of me. Our website is theharborcc.ca and you can contact me or someone else through that. We'd love to chat with you about that. Jesus says, I counsel you, in verse 18, and I'm just saying when Jesus says, I'd highly recommend you do something, we'd probably do well to do it. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And we're not talking about material riches, but spiritual riches. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Like I said, without Jesus, We have nothing. We are totally exposed and ridden with shame. We are advised to buy these clothes from Jesus. And I'll say this, friends, when we belong to Jesus Christ, we take off our old rags of shame. The Bible says that Jesus took our shame and scorned it upon the cross. We don't have to wear that stuff anymore. Instead of wearing the rags of shame, we can now wear royal attire. We get to be clothed, fully clothed in Jesus' righteousness, covered by his grace. It it goes from head to toe over us. And remember again that white represents purity and innocence and cleanness and blamelessness before God. That's what we get to wear as believers. We need to thank the Lord for that. And he says, And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You're watching and you say, Brayden, excuse me, this clearly says salve. You've pronounced it wrong. Thank you. Salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. This speaks to their spiritual blindness. When we come to Jesus and trust in Him, we are given new eyes through which to see. We start seeing things differently. Our spiritual eyes are open and we start seeing things how God wants us to see them, not the way we've always seen them or perhaps how the world sees them. And friends, here's what I'll say about all of these things the gold refined by fire, the white garments, and the salve or salve to anoint your eyes, we can't buy. Any of those things on our own we only receive them by God's grace it's this grace that he freely offers us and all we need to do is reach out and accept it and then we receive all of these things here's what I'll say about God's grace though it's supposed to utterly and totally change us we cannot cannot truly encounter God's grace and just remain the same We cannot get whacked in the face by the grace of God and and have it not leave an imprint upon us. So if what I'm saying is if we claim to be living in and experiencing the grace of God, but our lives appear totally unaffected, then we have simply not tasted and experienced his grace. Here's where the lukewarmness comes in again. I'm saying, how can you possibly be sitting on the sidelines? How can you possibly be stuck in the middle or be apathetic about your faith or be continuing on in sin when you have been impacted by the grace of God? Maybe you aren't as in as you thought you were. And you say, well, dang, that's kind of harsh. Like I thought Jesus was all, you know, Good feels and sunshine and butterflies and that kind of stuff. No, he's not all that. I mean like, yes, for sure, knowing Jesus is wonderful and belonging to him is amazing and there are benefits and blessings for sure. He brings joy and peace and strength and comfort to our lives. He He is always with us, we're never alone. He has, he has died for our sins and, and we have forgiveness and mercy and grace through him. That's amazing, let's not discount that at all. But what I'm saying is sometimes in Christ, there are hard words that we need to receive from him. Because Jesus is a dividing line, friends. He is a sharp sword and a stumbling block. And when we are out of line with his will for our lives, he doesn't just say, oh, that's too bad. He doesn't just let it slide. But he confronts us and he rebukes us in that. And this is actually a very, very, very good thing. Because look at verse 19. Jesus says, those whom I love I'd reprove and discipline and I love that very much because sometimes we can wrongly think, oh, God loves me and he is love and, and he's okay with everything I'm doing and he'd never discipline me. He could never speak harshly with me. He could never come down on me for something. Listen, this is just simply not the case. When we're out of line, God doesn't just let us slide. He, he, he intervenes. Sometimes he's going to smack us to get us back in line. And, and listen, he does this because he loves us. He loves us. And what I don't want you to hear is, oh, well, you know, you're saying that God you know, is going to punish me and condemn me. No, there is a difference between discipline and punishment. Punishment has to do with making somebody pay for something. You'll pay for what you did. Discipline, its purpose is to build up. There's a difference as well between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation says, you messed up, you're done, get out of my sight. Conviction says, you messed up. But you're mine, and I love you, and I want better for you. And I'm with you through it, and I'll help you. God has these hard words for us because he loves us. It is so bad for us to be in, for instance, a lukewarm state in our faith. It's because of the love of God that he speaks this way with us. God has to sternly warn us to to wake us up because it's so bad for us. So I'll say this, friends, if you are hearing this and you are lukewarm, and I hope and I pray that as you're listening to this, the Holy Spirit is convicting and knocking on your door. If you are lukewarm, you need to wake up and snap out of it. You cannot stay where you are. God has called you to greater things than this. Your, your middling faith is not pleasing to God. You need to wake up. I love you. Wake up. It says, be zealous and repent. Show some initiative. Make a decision that you're done living this way. Take one single, this is where it starts. Take one single solitary step in toward Jesus and purpose to walk with him. Repent. Acknowledge before God that you've been towing the line. You've been lukewarm. And turn away from that. Purpose to walk with him. Acknowledge you haven't been serious about your faith. You've been coasting. And hand that over to him. He will forgive you. He will give you strength and grace to get past it. So we don't run from God. We run to God with this stuff. Jesus says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock so jesus is here right now as we're partaking in this t- time together and he's trying to get your attention some of you he says if anyone hears my voice and opens the door i will come into him and eat with him and he with me if anyone in other words responds to this message if anyone renounces their ways and turns to jesus and lets him in and that can be you today god has grace for you today if you do this, Jesus will come in and be with you. This speaks of closeness and fellowship and a relationship. He And he is ready and eager for that. He wants that with you and for you. And, and your life will change. He will absolutely light you up. Your life will not be the same. You will certainly not be lukewarm in your faith anymore. Verse 21, he says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. The one who conquers is the one who trusts in Jesus and purposes to walk with Jesus and remains faithful to Jesus. And this verse is language of being with him in glory, in paradise, in sweet victory with Jesus for all eternity. What a day it will be when we stand in his presence. And finally, the very last verse on here, you could probably recite it by heart. For the last time, he says, verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So friends, I hope and I pray that we are listening. I hope and I pray we have not turned off our listening ears or our listening hearts or you haven't shut off the video by now. So that is our text, and I will say again, friends, it's been an honor to go through this with you. Really a blessing and a privilege. I want to take the few minutes that I have left, and I want to talk about us. I want to talk about the Harbor Church in 2020. What does this all mean for us? The inference here is probably pretty obvious, but it needs to be said anyway. We need to make sure that we are not lukewarm in our faith. As a church, if our prevailing demographic is that of lukewarm believers, we will, not, we will not be in the will of God. We will not be very effective in our mission. We will not be much good at loving others. We will not be growing in our faith. We will not be growing in our witness. We will not be living up to our full potential. And that's tragic, guys, honestly. It's a tragedy. Because I believe that God has equipped and gifted our church in wonderful ways. Like like he has given us gifts and passions and resources. Even a church our size, we're not a big church. But God has stocked our cupboards in many ways. We have everything we need. Already, we have everything we need to be effective as a church and to be in the will of God. I firmly believe that. But the whole thing, friends, rises or falls on how serious we are about our faith in Christ. God has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness and flourishing and effectiveness as a body. But if we aren't serious about it, friends, listen, we will squander it. That's not my heart for our church. That's not the heart of your leaders for your church. That's not what we want. So each of us needs to figure out where we stand here. You read in a place like 2 Corinthians 13.5, it encourages us to examine ourselves and to test ourselves to see where we stand in the faith. And so even if you are someone who would consider yourself to be super strong in your faith, great, that's wonderful. Examine yourself anyway. Don't just assume. So here's what I want to say. I want to give you some homework. And hopefully you will start this as soon as we're done this time together. I want you to take some time to be with the Lord. It's not very scientific. I want you to pray. Spend time in prayer. I want you to spend some time in worship. Maybe you are into journaling. Maybe you are into fasting. Whatever it is, accompany that with getting into the scriptures, read God's word and soak in it. I'm just saying none of us can probably use the excuse right now that we don't have time. I got you there. So here's what I'll say and then I'll come in. If you're lukewarm, maybe it's just in one area of your life. Maybe it's in the whole realm of your faith. If you're lukewarm, repent. Repent. Turn away from that and turn to God. He loves you. He will welcome you back in fully. He will change your heart. Lukewarmness doesn't have to be your defining mark for the rest of your walk. God will change your heart starting even now. If you're not lukewarm, maybe you're you know hot in your faith. You know what I would say? Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Give thanks for that. Don't take that for granted. Don't. Allow that to cause you to think you're better than other people who maybe aren't in the same boat. Give thanks to the Lord for the grace He's given you and that gift of of you being in that place where you are right now. And keep pressing in and keep seeking more and more of the Lord. Rejoice in Him. If you are cold in your faith, if you're someone who's never accepted Jesus or maybe you've rejected Him and walked away from Him, my prayer for you, which I'm going to pray in a minute, is that you would come to know him. This is all about Jesus. And guys, I just say again, I love you. I want this to be a stake in the ground today. If there is any lukewarmness in our church, in in your life, in my life, let this be the day where we renounce that. Let this be the day when we turn completely to Jesus. Let this be the day that we start living the life that he has called us to live. So wherever you're watching or listening to this from, I want to invite you to pray with me. Let's go to the Lord together. Lord Jesus, we first acknowledge who you are. You are the head of the church. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You are the one who has died in our place we thank you for the cross today we thank you for the salvation that we can receive through you we're thankful that you paid for our sins so we don't have to pay for our sins so Lord Jesus we just come to you now as your people and Lord we're asking for for more and more grace not because we deserve your grace but Lord we love your grace and we want we want more of it So God, I'm specifically with regard to this text we were in today. I'm praying that. I'm praying that you would see us, Lord, and that you would convict us. Holy Spirit, we just we even now just welcome you to do a work in our hearts. I'm praying that you would convict us of things that need to change. Lord, I'm praying for the one who is. Quote, hot in their faith. I'm thankful for them, Lord. Give them grace. Give them uh, more and more of you and more and more of your presence, Lord, and let them continue to uh, press in and, and just be fired up for you, God. Thank you for the flourishing that's happening in those lives. Lord, for the one who is cold toward you, I'm praying, Lord Jesus, that you would stir in their heart by the power of the Spirit and that. This would be a cause for consideration of who you are and what you've done, Lord. That there'd be maybe a new receptivity to the things of God and, and, and your involvement in their life. Lord, would you do that work? Would you begin stirring in their hearts even now? Finally, Lord, I pray for the one who is lukewarm. And Lord, we know that you have grace for them as well. And we're thankful for that. I'm praying, God, that you would fan into flame a faith that is so strong and so passionate and so enthusiastic and energetic, Lord, that you would see us where we are now and that you would utterly change us, God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being patient with us. Holy Spirit, again, we ask you to do this work in our church. We say you are welcome here. We love you, Lord. We lift all of these things up to you, and we're thankful for our church, God. Thank you that we can be a part of a body of believers. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your good name. Amen. Thank you, guys. God bless you. It's been a privilege. Thanks a lot.